points and thoughts for us to ponder, and we're going to get into exactly uh, what those videos we're talking about tonight. And I just want to say this to you guys. Um, the last two sessions have been, have been a lot, and I want to acknowledge that. Uh, we have set a very high bar for walking through the entire book of John. As we've talked about the truth of God and the truth of Scripture, uh, it's been quite a bit, a lot to digest, and you guys have done a phenomenal job. Uh, but here's what I'm convinced of. Uh, y'all are capable. Uh, if you're taking calculus and AP comp and, and these level of courses in your schooling, I know you guys can handle the messages that we're, that we're diving into. So my prayer for you guys tonight is that we do just that. And as we continue to tell the truth now of Jesus and look at his life, that we would be kind of all in on this idea. So as we look there tonight, I want to invite you to turn again to the book of John. And we're going to cover chapters two through six. So and again, the, the, the vein of truth-telling, uh, we're not even halfway through yet. Uh, we're not to halftime, so to speak. Uh, and as you guys know, in any endeavor in life, anything that is worth pursuing, any goal that is worth obtaining, it takes some sacrifice and some self-discipline. So I pray that you guys are in for that as we dive through the scriptures and pray uh, this would be a sweet time for us together. As we think about, again, the life of Jesus Christ and who he was, we know very little about him early on in his life, right? His public ministry begins at about the age of 30, somewhere in that neck of the woods. We know um, a little bit of details, dedicated as a baby. He shows up at the temple at about age 12. Uh, we know very little about his high school years, but Mary and Joseph obviously understood pretty, something pretty significant about this boy that they were raising. I mean, can you imagine growing up a home as a teenager uh, and never sinning, right? Never cheating on a test, uh, seeing your boy that never errs in any way. He never trash talks, never failed to do his, his chores. I mean, he was different in, in every way. And yet the beginning years of Jesus' life up till the age of 30 are relatively silent. And it's fitting that Jesus began his public ministry around that age, right? And Jesus begins to, to really flip the scripts of what was typical and what was expected of a rabbi or a teacher in that Jewish culture. So here's what I would like to do as we begin now looking at uh, this public ministry. I want to do a high-level kind of overview of chapters 2 through 6 together and maybe connect the dots for us as to how all of these things fit, fit together. And I want to show you as Jesus begins to move towards this public stage of his ministry and, and puts who he is on display for the first time. And that happens in John chapter 2 at a place called Cana at a wedding. And to set up maybe a little bit of the backstory here as we move into this text, as we now have left chapter one, uh, six disciples are now fully following uh, Jesus, half of the men that will ultimately follow him. And as we read through the gospels, we tend to take a lot of these stories for granted, but you need to remember as these men are rubbing shoulders with Jesus, their minds are blown day to day as they see the things that he is doing. And the very first miracle that Jesus does is at this wedding. Look at John chapter two, verses three and following with me. It says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, we obviously know this to be Mary, they have no wine. And at a wedding, this is a, a big oops. And Jesus now responds to her and says, woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Jesus repeats that refrain all through the book of John, that it's not time for me yet. It's not time for me yet. And Jesus now says to his mother, it's not time. And his mother says to his servants in verse 5, whatever he says to you, do it. And Jesus, as you know this story, makes water into wine. And he makes a ton of it. Good wine, in fact, as the text says. And yet Mary asks this question, hey, and makes this statement, whatever Jesus says, you do it. And Jesus, in this first moment, begins to show himself publicly as to who he is. Look down at verse 
11. It says, this beginning is the sign of the signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And there's that key word again all through the book of John that Jesus is doing these things. He's putting who he is on display so that people may believe in who he is. As we move now into chapter three, Jesus meets with a man by the name of Nicodemus. You need to know a little bit about Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. He was a member of the, the ruling class of the religious leaders of the day in Jerusalem. He was considered the best of the best. He was the best uh, that the people had to offer. And he was very well respected in his community. Deeply devoted to the law of God. Passionate about obedience. And he comes to Jesus at night. Because they're not real sure, the religious leaders, what do we do with this guy? How do we handle Jesus? He's beginning to kind of hit the scene publicly, and we have some concerns because he doesn't fit the mold of what the Jewish expectation was for the Messiah. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. Nicodemus, this man now, comes to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus begins to move straight to the heart, and he begins to tell Nicodemus, you don't get to just approach God on your own terms. You don't get to check all your religious boxes, all these things that you thought would gain you entrance into the kingdom of God. Jesus says something completely different. He says, you actually must be born again. Something within you must happen. This claim, by the way, that a person needs to be born again would have been massively troubling for Nicodemus because Jewish people believed that they were chosen, that they were kind of in, they were the blue chips, they were the ones that were first picked on the, you know, the dodgeball court, so to speak. They were the ones that had the inside track to the kingdom. And Jesus moves straight for this man's heart and says, no. It's not your pedigree, it's not your family, it's not your upbringing. None of those things determine whether you are in or out in the kingdom of God. And in verse 4, Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? This is a very logical question. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is, is mind-boggled in this moment. He's thinking about physical birth, and Jesus is talking about something so different, about spiritual rebirth, saying something within you has to change in regard to your disposition to who God is. Now, to be frank with you guys, this is my prayer for you this week. As I've sat in the quietness of my room and prepared messages and thought about sitting with you guys, this is my heart. For those of you that have not yet accepted Christ as your Savior, that something in you this week would change, whether it's the singing, the videos, the messages, the community, that there's something in you that would be stirring to move you towards God, and this too might happen in your life, that you would hear the gospel, the work of Christ on your behalf, and that you would believe and that you would take a step towards Jesus in faith. So that's Nicodemus. As we continue on in this narrative, turn with me to John chapter 4. As Jesus meets with a woman at a well. By the way, the church that I'm from, the Well Community Church, gets its name from this story, and it's an incredible one. 
In John chapter 4, verses 3 and following, I want you to notice it says, Jesus left Judea, which was the land of the Jews, and he went again into the Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, have to is an interesting word because Jesus didn't have to travel through this region of the, the, the area that he was traveling to. He had other options. He chose to. If you know anything about the relationships between the Jews and the Samaritans, there's about 700 years of racial tension between these two people groups. The Jews literally despised the Samaritans. They were half Assyrian and half Jew. They worshiped in different places, and the Jews wanted nothing to do with them. They were ostracized. So Jesus says, I'm not going around them. I'm going through them. I have a heart for these people that the Jews during that day and age rejected and did not want any interaction with. And Jesus in this moment, as he passes through this land, has an incredible interaction with a Samaritan woman. Look at verse seven with me. It says, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Jesus is breaking so many cultural norms, being with a woman, Speaking to her in this way, his disciples not being there, him speaking as a Jew to a Samaritan, and yet he feels completely comfortable with her in this situation. And she is at the well in the heat of the day with no one else around her. We're going to see why here in a little bit in the story, because she is full of shame and has been rejected by her community. And in verse 9, the Samaritan woman now says to Jesus, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink? Since I am a Samaritan woman, for Jews, as we mentioned, have no dealings with Samaritans. She is shocked that this man, this rabbi, would even interact with her. And Jesus answers her in verse 10. Jesus answered and says to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle, referring to Abraham's grandson way back in the Old Testament. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst again. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Now, obviously, she is thinking about physical water. Jesus is taking this conversation so much deeper. Jesus is talking about a spiritual reality and something so much more refreshing that she has to offer, that he has to offer her. And in this back and forth, Jesus makes two pretty strong claims to this woman. Number one, if she knew who he was, she would know that he is the fulfillment of everything she is looking for, not simply a physical thirst. And secondly, in this moment, he proclaims to be the source of living water. Friends, this is so clearly linked to God being called the source of living water in the Old Testament. Jesus, in this moment, is equating himself with deity. Jesus is proclaiming that only in himself the fullness of life and meaning and hope can be found. That all of our desires, our wants, our cares, our pursuits in this world will forever fall short. But only in him 
will we find satisfaction and purpose and meaning. He ultimately is the only one who is satisfactory and ultimately who satisfies. This is the message that he's conveying to this woman. And then he kind of changes gears. He gets real with this woman. Out of nowhere, in verse 16, he says to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have said correctly, I have no husband. For you have five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She is blown away by the statement, How could he possibly know as a stranger this information about me? I want you to notice last chapter, Nicodemus referred to Jesus as teacher or rabbi. This woman here says, I see that you maybe are a, a prophet. Not quite, they're both close but not there yet. And she is definitely trying to change the subject because she doesn't want to talk about her past. And she says now in verse 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain and you people say that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming where neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship with the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. He says to her, you're focused on the location. The location doesn't matter. What matters is who you are speaking with. The hour for that worship to come is now in spirit and in truth. And the woman now says in verse 25, I know Messiah is coming. The Old Testament predicted him, right? This is the person we talked about this morning who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will declare all things to us. Listen to Jesus' answer when she talks about this coming Messiah in verse 26. I who speak to you am he. The Messiah that you and your people and the Jewish people have been waiting for for literally thousands of years. You are standing face to face with him having a conversation at a well. Is that not mind-boggling to you? What does this say about Jesus? The first time he reveals himself as Messiah, he comes to an ethnically diverse, immoral woman. And he claims to be God as if to speak hope to her, value to her, and significance to her. I am the one, he says, that the Old Testament foretold. I am the anointed one that God sent to restore all of creation. I am the one who has come to bring living water in the fullness of life, where grace and truth are there. Now, this truth that he speaks to her might hurt a little bit. He got real with her. But it was necessary to deal with her in truth in order to transform her life. And she goes, by the way, into her city and tells the entire city about this interaction. Look at verse 39 of chapter 4. Many believed because of the word that the woman told them. And not only that, in verse 41, many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because that you said that we believe. For we have heard ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. But he is, according to the mouth of this woman in the community that she was in, 
their Savior. Powerful to see this progression as Jesus now arrives on the scene. Now, the first two miracles that we studied here in the book of John were more private in nature. But as we now transition to chapter 5, you're going to see Jesus move into a very public type of ministry. And in chapter 5 of John, Jesus ends up at a place called the Pools of Bethesda. And we're going to find out in this area, it's got a lot of interesting tradition attached to it. As you know, during Jesus' day, Jerusalem was controlled by Rome. And Rome simply took all the Greek gods that were out there, the pantheon of gods that you studied in school with Zeus and Apollo and all of those, and they hit select all, copy, and paste, and pulled all of the Greek gods into their Roman pantheon. And this place where they worshipped was, was linked to a certain god by the name of Asclepius. Asclepius was the god of healing, according to Rome. And they believed that Asclepius would move in pools of water, and if you got into those pools, you would be healed. So in chapter 5 of verse 3, I want you to notice who is sitting at these pools of water. It says, There lay a multitude of those who were sick and blind and lame and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. So all of these people who had permanent diseases, issues that they could not resolve in their life, they sat by these waters hoping to be healed by this Roman God. And in verse 5, you'll notice a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Can you imagine? The word ill is literally the word invalid. It has the idea of being completely disabled. This man cannot walk. For almost four decades, he has found himself in this condition. He is desperate to be healed. He's literally at the end of his rope, probably has tried everything. And in verse 6, Jesus catches eyes with him. It says, when he saw him lying there, and he knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition. He said to him, do you wish to get well? Isn't that an odd question? Like, this guy's been sitting there 38 years. Like, duh. Like, yeah, that's actually why I'm here. And the sick man in verse 7 answers him and says, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But when I am coming in, another steps down before me. So someone else gets healed or I can't get in first. And Jesus says in verse 8, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Jesus, from a word spoken in his mouth, similar to how God spoke the world into existence, tells this man whose legs have been withered for 38 years, whose muscles are no doubt atrophied, who simply couldn't walk even if he was physically able, commands this man to stand. And in a moment, he stands up. And did you notice, by the way, in the text where Jesus told him not to go? He never said to get in the water because he didn't want this man to be confused about who healed him or what healed him. You notice, by the way, in this text, it says that it happened on the Sabbath. And the Jews that were around that saw this said, this is a day of rest, and you're not allowed to pick up your pallet on that day. Talk about a lesson in missing the point. Look at verse 10 in their response to Jesus healing this man. It says, the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them in verse 11, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away, and there was a crowd in that place. 
I want you to notice the varying different opinions of Jesus as we roll through now chapter five. Nicodemus said, you're a good teacher, and that's where it ends with me. The woman at the well said, I I perceive that you're a prophet. You're like Elijah, maybe of the Old Testament. The Jews present simply called him a man that were there at that healing. All of these are close, but ultimately they are insufficient to fully describe who Jesus is. Well, thankfully, Jesus in his own words is very clear about who he is. He is going to tell all present for this healing that he is God. Look at chapter 5, verse 16. It says, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself is working. Now, Jesus claiming that God is his Father is a very clear statement that Jesus believes that he is God. He is the Son of God. He is claiming to be equal with God. Jesus is making a claim about himself that he and the Father are one and they are equal. And this, by the way, is so clearly understood by the Jews. They didn't misunderstand Jesus' intention here. Look at their reaction in verse 18. For this reason, because he claimed to be God, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This was the highest level of offense in the Jewish mind's eye. And gang, we are only six chapters in or five chapters into 21 chapters in the book of John. And the Jews there already realize we want this man dead because he believes that he is God. And they are still trying to answer the question of who Jesus is. Look at verse 19. It says, therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something that he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son does in the like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all the things that he himself is doing. And the father uh, will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. In verse 21 For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. This idea is claimed over and over by Jesus and John and all the other gospels, that he is indeed God, and the New Testament confirms this as well. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. In the closing words now of John chapter 5, Jesus makes this incredible statement that we've read now twice in our time together. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you will have eternal life. But it is these that testify about me, Jesus says. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Friends, Jesus wants to give life. Back then to the Jews that were present in this healing and to us today as well. The invitation is there if you will simply come to Jesus 
and accept him for who he is. Now, let's turn a page and go into John chapter 6. And as we roll through this chapter, there are times in our Bible that Jesus has given all types of very formal names. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the Savior, the Messiah. There are other times that we see figurative language used to describe who Jesus is that everybody can understand. Well, John chapter 6 is just one of those occasions where we see Jesus put forth who he is in a very figurative way. Jesus, in chapter 6 of John, miraculously feeds 5,000 people with bread and fish. You've heard of the story, I'm sure, of the the feeding of the the 5,000. This miracle is so significant that it's written in all four gospel accounts. A great multitude had been following Jesus for several days. They were hungry. They were listening to his teachings, following after him. They didn't have Chipotle or food trucks or a buffet, and all these people were committed to following him, but they wanted to eat. And the initial thought was from Jesus' followers, hey, send them home. And Jesus says, no, we're actually going to feed them. And he takes five loaves and two fishes from a, a boy's basically box lunch and then feeds everybody that is there that day. Most people estimate some 10,000 people. The 5,000 that were counted were only the males. And I want you to notice the people's response to this miracle in verse 14. It says, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this truly is the prophet who has come into the world. They are linking this back to their Old Testament beliefs all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18 where it states that a prophet will be raised up and I will put the words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them as I commanded. Those are the words of God. And these people are saying, based on what we see in this moment, Jesus is that prophet sent by God. He shows compassion for this multitude by feeding them. He shows them compassion by teaching the truth of who he is. And the next day, more crowds come to follow him. And they want to see the bread of life here. And Jesus says to him in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will no longer hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. The context, by the way, of this statement is Jesus talks about being the bread of life, this very figurative language of who he is, was the idea of how God provided manna, uh, food for the Israelites as they were leaving the nation of Egypt and fed them for 40 years in that day and age. They no doubt had that idea in mind. And Jesus says that manna had to be collected daily. He said, I will provide for you bread in a way that you will never, ever hunger again. And he's not simply talking about a physical hunger. Jesus is talking about a spiritual hunger, a soul hunger. And you and I know what we're talking about as Jesus mentions that. The hunger that Jesus satisfies isn't simply a desire to to put food in our bellies. Jesus desires to satisfy so much more. The questions that we ask in life, who am I? Why am I here? What is the meaning of life? And what happens maybe after this world is over? This is the, the desire of what Jesus claims to do and claims to be. And In chapter 6, verse 60, as we kind of wind up this chapter, It says, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to this? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, that he wouldn't simply feed them again, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What do we do when the teaching of Jesus becomes difficult? That it's not all promises of health and wealth and prosperity. Uh, When we are called to total dependence upon him and, and believe, as Jesus is calling us to, that he will take care of every area of their lives if they will simply believe in who he is. 
How will you handle seeing even greater difficulties in your life? In verse 66, it says, As a result of Jesus saying these hard things, many of the disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the 12, his disciples, Do you want to go away also? Do you? And Simon Peter, one of the 12, said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In this moment, Peter makes his decision. He declares very publicly and very clearly that he believes Jesus to be the Messiah. After walking through the same things that we walk through tonight, of Jesus making wine from water, of an encounter with Nicodemus, of a woman at a well, of, of all the things that he did, G Peter makes this claim that there is no life to be found anywhere else but in Jesus. And at the end of each of these encounters, each person is forced to make a decision about who they believe Jesus to be. Nicodemus says, you're simply a teacher. The woman at the well, a prophet, or maybe this giver of living water. To the Jews, he was just a man. In John chapter six, he was the bread of life. His listeners had to decide who he was. And friends, as we finish tonight, I wanna to ask you that question as well. A question that requires personal responsibility. As Jesus puts himself on display and does these things according to John, that we would believe in the Son of God and who he is, who do you say that Jesus is? There are thousands of opinions out there, both then and now. But this is the question that I want you to wrestle with. This is the question that we're going to ask tonight, tomorrow morning, and tomorrow night as well, as we think about the person and the nature of Jesus Christ. So my, my prayer for you guys as you head into your cabin time is that you would have the courage to ask that question and maybe even to answer it. Is Jesus who he said he was? Or is he simply a teacher? Is he simply some guy that believed that he was the Messiah? Was he a lunatic, as many have said? Or is he really God? And is that evidenced by all the things that he has done and all the things that he has demonstrated through his miracles and his healing, all of these things to prove that he is trustworthy, as the scriptures say? So my question as we leave here, who is Jesus? Who is he to you? Friends, there is no more important question that you will ask and that you will answer in this life. Who is Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the truths that we find here. God, I pray that you would stir our hearts to take a fresh look at the person of your son and what you sent him to do and who he was and who he is today. Father, would you show us that what we see in you is true what we see in your scriptures is true. And the scriptures paint Jesus as the Messiah, as our Savior, as a healer, and is so much more than that, God. But Father, I pray that we would have the courage to embrace that reality and to determine on our own and in our, our own convictions who he is, and that we would not leave this time on the hill without answering that very profound question, who is Jesus? Father, I pray for the space tonight for these students to have that conversation that they would be open and vulnerable and honest, and they would allow one another to speak into that, and they would answer that question tonight. Father, would you be honored in Christ's name.